I don't think we've met before, but I'm the referee on this field. Leinster could offer me five mil a year, I wouldn't go. <laughs> it is Robbie Robbie weekly. Hello everybody and welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly. Gavin Casey with you here and cards on the table. This is our second recording of the day. I'm sure you could imagine why. At about quarter to nine this morning we set off with Bernard Jackman, Murray Kinsella to look ahead to Paris. Uh, Some team news has broken since which has entirely changed the complexion of the game and changed our makeup here a little bit as well. We are joined once more though by Ilte Daffod of Agence France Presse. He is uh, a francophone galley, I think you describe yourself as in your Twitter bio. Ilte, uh, thanks a million for rejoining us. We've lost Birch in the meantime, he's up the walls, but great to see you again. How has life been for you since nine o'clock this morning? <laughs> no, it's all good. Yeah, it was um, quite um, surprising news. No one expected it. The French definitely didn't. And uh, yeah, it's going to change the, the game completely, I think. Yeah, so we're just going to crack on with a new pod. Murray Kinsel is here as well. Murray, we had no inclination really or inkling that this was coming down the tracks. Even the team that had been um, circulated a little bit prematurely had included Johnny Sexton in it. So quite the shock to get just as we were about to publish our original pod, actually. Yeah, there's often whispers when this kind of big news happens. Um, Ireland did pretty well to keep it under wraps. He picked up a hamstring injury in training yesterday, having obviously been in the team and done his captain's press conference on Tuesday and been an integral part of it and really the key figure for, for Ireland. But as Andy Farrell said earlier on, it is what it is. Let's crack on. It's a different complexion to the game completely, but riveting nonetheless. Joey Carberry just did a, a press conference minutes ago, really, and painted a picture of a calm, composed, excited um, out half who's going to get his first start in the Six Nations, which is crazy, really, given that he's been involved, obviously, in Six Nations. This is another level up in a huge and probably decisive Six Nations match. I don't think we need to shy away from the fact that on the earlier pod, which we won't refer to too much, everybody actually suggested that Ireland would win the game, including yourself, Ilted over there. To what extent has Sexton's absence changed the complexion of the game and changed your thinking, not necessarily on the verdict, I'm sure that has happened as well, but just in terms of how you envisage this game playing out now? I'm not sure how it's difficult to say because one player in a team sport, 23, 46 guys in the field plus the ref, etc., etc. Um, but Johnny Sexton's influence on any team, be that Leinster, Ireland, or the Lions in in the past, is is immense because of what he's like as a trainer, what he's like as a player. He's so competitive, and this game will be no, would have been no different to that. So you you do lack that sort of thing and. The French, the France players will be aware of that because they know how long he's been playing. During the week, there have been questions about how important Sexton is to the team. And said, yeah, he's been key. He's the Kamawaki said on Wednesday that he's the, sorry, Romain Tomac said on Wednesday that uh, John Sexton is the cornerstone of this team. And there's, there's no other way of saying it really. He's so key to this team and how the way he played. And it's not just over the past six months, two seasons. It's been a decade and a bit. So he's so key to the team and, his influence we missed, but that, what, what, what that happens is you get Joe, Joey Carberry coming in with a chance. Extremely different. And it is a huge blow to Ireland's chances. And, and I don't mean that as talking down Joey Carberry, just on the very facts alone of Sexton being the captain, being the director of Ireland's 
attacking play and often the leader of their defensive play with his ferocious appetite, the power of his personality, his will to win, his ability to nail clutch moments as we saw in 2018 with that incredible steal. I was watching it back last night, his drop goal. It's an unbelievable moment of skill and mental strength and just technical quality as well. So yeah, it is absolutely undoubtedly a huge blow. It's like France having lost Antoine Dupont, their captain and talisman, it would have been a huge blow as well. So definitely Ireland's chances, and it's been reflected immediately since, are are diminished. And it does change the outlook of the game where, you you know, earlier on you felt it was a real 50-50. This probably tilts it into France's favour that that little bit more. They were the narrow favourites, I think, anyway, but this absolutely... Um, solidifies that position the exciting thing is for Ireland and Andy Farrell said this earlier on like it's been taken out of his hands now but it is probably a position that a lot of people wanted Ireland to find themselves in where Johnny Sexton wasn't there and it's been a constant talking point and now it's been taken out of their hands and they've had to do it where Joey Carb gets this huge start he started against Argentina in November this is just so different isn't it and he's been involved in big occasions off the bench, but this is just so, so different to, to be the guy from the start, to be the one driving everything. And I suppose to be that personality as well, in a different way, maybe to Johnny Sexton. It was interesting earlier on, Carberry was talking about how his travails with injuries and being out of the game have, have made him appreciate more and probably grasp opportunities more in the game. And and this is probably a moment that he's been picturing in all those quiet, lonely boring moments where he's been stuck in rehab in in Munster and trying to get himself right this is what he was fighting hard for in in some really tough times where it didn't look good for him so yeah a blow for Ireland but equally a a chance for him to to learn and listen this could happen at any stage Johnny Sexton is 36 it's only a hamstring strain he's going to be out for seven to ten days but this is part and parcel of for example a World Cup campaign Um, when you're trying to balance squad and you've got games coming thick and fast and it's good for Ireland, I suppose, in that view to to learn something about themselves and to put Carberry and Jack Carty, who's back in the squad for the first time since 2019 World Cup on the bench, to put them in that position as well. Notwithstanding the fact that it is a massive opportunity for Carberry and the fact that it is very different, Murray. Uh, Carberry, any time he has played for Ireland, has actually never let Ireland down. Like, he actually rarely has a poor performance for Ireland, even if it is only a 20-minute cameo or or even less than that. He's landed crucial kicks, even going back. Like, it goes back as far as 2016, where he came on against the country of his birth and did his thing. And yes, it is going to be different over 80 minutes. But one thing, one of his strengths, I think, Carberry seems to be, um, from the outside looking in, just his temperament. He seems to be a really, really cool customer. Nothing necessarily phases him. I remember being as a fan at a Leinster Munster game at the Aviva maybe three or four years ago. I think he was actually playing for Leinster at the time. And by the time I'd gotten back to Searsons with my friends, Carberry, who had played in the game, was already outside there drinking points with his mates, with the masses, just, you know, cool as you like. And it probably helps to have a guy with that type of mindset being thrown into this bullpen now, doesn't it? Like the fact that it won't be a burden on him. And I'm not even sure he'll find it daunting. I think he will just literally relish it. And what will be, will be then afterwards. Mm. This is what he wants. This is why he plays the game. This is what drives him um, to be in this mix. And the thing about Johnny Sexton's been playing good rugby for Ireland very recently because the team is playing really well and have facilitated him being in better form. And the same you would imagine will will apply for for Joey Carberry because the attack is flowing now because guys around 
Johnny Sexton were making good decisions, the, the same will apply. Because Ireland have been defending well, Carberry can be in better positions to to be part of that system. Like Ilt had said it earlier on, it's it is a collective thing and it's not just going to be the number 10 who who decides it obviously they're involved in the pinnacle moments and there's more focus on them but a good Ireland team around him one that's in form gives him a better chance of showing what he's all about and he has little subtleties to a game that are different from sex and you would imagine the way Ireland have been playing will really suit him if they can get any of that kind of flow in their attack if they can get some momentum where they get quick ball and it's about making decisions late to the line about darting as well which he obviously has a a real strength at in his game. He's a really dangerous player when he's going at the line. So, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I think he'll absolutely be loving this opportunity. He said more of his family have booked to go over to, to Paris late stage. So, a big weekend for the Carberries. <laughs> it certainly is. And Ilta, don't to pick your brains on France and the general temperature over there, the fact that the nation seems to be falling in love with this national team again. But just for listeners... How did you actually wind up in France? Tell us uh, the, the kind of backstory as to uh, how you became a francophone galet. Uh, yeah, so I did a, a broadcast journalism master's at Cardiff University, and then I worked at BBC in Cardiff for uh, two, three years. And then my boss now called me up. He said, Do you fancy coming to work in Paris? But it's a two month contract. I was like, Okay, this is October, two months away, Christmas. It's a bit tight. What am I going to do? So I came out, flew out, and those two months into six months, a year, two years, and now it's almost, yeah, it's over three and a half years since I've been here. And uh, yeah, to cover French rugby, go to the majority of Stade Francais and Racing home games, go to all the French games, sometimes away. And then because AFP, Agence France Presse, an international news agency, we cover all sports as well. So over the last summer, I went to the Euros, uh, which is nice to go watch Wales play. And then also I was meant to go to Beijing for the Winter Olympics, but because my partner is thankfully pregnant, and I wasn't, wasn't able to go to them. So what the, the good side of that is that I'd be able to join you guys in this podcast. <laughs> the previous that's video. the most important thing, and that, that's brilliant news. So massive congrats. What is it like working in French rugby? I love following it from abroad. I love reading Midi Olympique. I love the transfer gossip and the, just the scale of it. Like, What's it like being in, in the centre, really? Yeah, it's... French rugby is massive to a certain extent. <laughs> um, if, if anyone's read Unholy Union, which is a book by Michael Aylwin and Mark Evans, which I highly recommend, it's about how rugby has become professional. And what uh, Michael Aylwin says in that is that France has the biggest rugby population in the world, but that's not even the French country. It's the south of France, which is 27 million people from Bordeaux across the Lyon and then down. That is where you have the biggest market for audience, players, etc., for everything in rugby. And he's, he's pretty much right. And obviously, I, I live in Paris, so it's a bit different, but you do have two professional clubs here. You've got uh, three or four other semi-pro professional, depends what wages you look at. Also in Paris, you've got a few to the north in Rouen and Nevers or in Brittany and in Vannes. So there's a massive appetite for rugby here. And you see that, like one little anecdote is that in France, they sell a Panini sticker album just for the top 14. When at home in Wales, you'd only get that for the Euros or football or the Football World Cup. When you're every season, you can, like, a four-year-old four or a 24-year-old grown man can buy his sticker of Antoine Dupont and put it in his album. And it's that sort of vigour around it. Obviously, there's a lot of money involved. Canal Plus's deal is worth £113 million per season, starting from uh, after the Rugby World Cup. And it's just huge. So all those games are live on every weekend. And like you said, the Mid-Olympique, 
Monday and a Friday gets released, a huge paper, 24, 32, 36 pages sometimes, um, with hell of a lot of transfer gossip, which is quite interesting. And that's another part of it where the media here is the access you get to players um, to find out those r rumours or suspected moves is far more different. So a lot of the time, every week, I um, have to uh, supply a top 14 preview for the weekend. And the thing on that is getting an, an international player, normally anglophone, to do a piece around that player. So someone like Scott Higginbotham, who's at Bordeaux-Berg, or Ben Tamarifuna, who's, at, who's at, now at Bordeaux-Berg, or even Axel Muller, who's the Argentinian-American winger at Breve, all different sort of things like that. And the the press, uh, press attached to the press, uh, they're happy enough to give us the, the, the numbers because I don't know if that's naivety or maturity about the subject where, no, we, we, we trust you to be able to have this number and not abuse it. And when you interview the player, it's a better interview because it's one-to-one -one, or if it's with a racing or a staff say player, I go over to Replace du Robinson or Jean Bois or we go and grab a coffee and do an interview uh, like that. And it's a far, in the end, the, the product, the, 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 the article, I hope, is better because you have a much more better rapport, it's much more personal and it's for the good of the player, it's for the good for the club, it's for the good for French rugby in whole and also rugby globally. So, yeah, French rugby is great, it's fantastic, it's frustrating at times, but no, it's, uh, it's, it's just, yeah. It's, mm, it's different. It's, it is different. I will admit, I was literally the twenty-four-year-old man buying the stick album. I just couldn't resist when I went in. It brought so much nostalgia back when I saw it when it was over there for a season, and yeah, it was joyful. But um, yeah, it, there's, there's just a different mentality, Gavin. We see it from from here, and and how big a deal it all is. Yeah, I was worried there as Ilted was talking that we might not get you back from Paris after the weekend, <laughs> Murray. So. <laughs> you know all of that access it uh, certainly is different uh, we, we have loads of questions from the 42 members murray but also people who replied to you on twitter on facebook i wanted to start with this one from podrick and it went down very well with birch actually as well when we put it in the whatsapp group he was wondering how will france's size affect ireland's likely game plan uh, he read this week, Podrick did that is, that defensively they look to aggressively counter Rook on either 15 metre line where support players are less likely to be available. So does this mean playing in the 12 channel to negate that or maybe more kicking out of hand? Uh, he was wondering, this is pre-selection, would it impact selection as well? Uh, maybe Henshaw might get a start. We know now that that won't happen. But what do you make of that? I, Birch was saying earlier that counter-rooking in the 15 channel wouldn't necessarily be uncommon, but that wasn't what... that I suppose it's the nature of how France do it is what stood out to him, if, if I recall correctly. Yeah, part of their defensive strategy, they're really aggressive on the, the counter-rook when they identify opportunities, and they're threats across their team and not just in their four pack in that area. You saw Anthony Jelanch get one in France's first defensive set of the game, actually, against Italy, but... Um, Gabon Villiers was involved in two of them later in the game even Roman Ensemach who we talk about his flashy skills but he does like to get stuck in as well he was involved in another of them so it is a strength across the, the board for them I think the encouraging thing for from Ireland is that they kind of stick to their guns even there was a bit of chat about you know bring Ian Henderson straight back into the second row because he's heavier but um, Ty Burns playing brilliant rugby and he really aids the way Ireland are playing with his ability to pass the ball and link play you saw it last weekend a number of times for the Mac Hansen just before Mac Hansen's passed to Bundyaki it's Byrne who links really fluidly from the the three-man pod out the back to Sexton and on to Hansen later in the game he plays a lovely tip on pass to play through the Welsh defence when they read off out the back onto Aki and Sexton 
after seeing that picture so many times in the in the first half and that's now become a strength of Ireland's they'll absolutely have to be cognizant like opposition analysis is a massive part of it I would imagine they will probably kick a little bit more ball this weekend given the aggressive nature of France's defence but uh, you'd love to see them and I expect to see them back what they've been doing well when they are in a situation to to play with quick ball um, and to use those link, link passes tip on passes going out the back door they've got such a nice connection in their attack now at the moment it is a bit of a, a superpower for them so that is going to be a fascinating battle a, a defensive strength that they haven't faced with this attack yet really in November and obviously last weekend um, and how they they manage that um, the the power side of it as well is a really interesting one that Borg mentions there uh, has been much discussed they're big and beefy, the French. They've got Weenie Antonio with 145 kg. Having once been 168 kg, I was actually reading an interview last night, which also mentioned that he used to be a, a Shakespearean actor when he was younger in school. So a man of many, many talents. And one of them is being big and powerful. Um, Paul Willem said the tight head lock is, is a huge unit. And really, they're powerful across the board. But again, like I look at a, the Irish pack now and go, that's a really powerful, punchy pack. Maybe not in terms of sheer dimensions not as big but powerful all of them can carry they've got really good footwork before they use their power as well so they're not just running into Weenia Tony's big left shoulder um all the time now you have to do some of that but I, th- I think there's power in that Irish pack there's technical nous in the set piece to line out the mall which are big areas for France and then the scrum is going to be just absolutely fascinating like Antonio and Willems' side against Andrew Porter who's still getting more comfortable in that loose head slot on, on the left-hand side of Ireland scrum. That's going to be a key battle. So, yeah, I, I, I think Ireland can be enthused by the performances their their forwards and back themselves with a little bit of variety away from just running into guys. That's the key, really, Yiltud, isn't it? Even if Ireland do find that there is perhaps a slight disparity in physical strength, physicality, size, whatever, you just have to be smart to get around it, I guess. Yeah, I think that's what... Um, Ireland showed, especially against Wales, sadly, uh, for my compatriots and myself, that um, they could have Ty Furlong or Bundyaki in that first receiver slot, and either they crash it up and gain yards or they pop it back behind with some delicate handoff and um, offloading. And yes, France have also got have also got a very big, powerful pack, Antonio Valenza, etc., etc. But they've also got a very mobile individual, someone like Cyril Bay, who um, he's solid in, in the scrums, but also he's a proper loose head, a bit like Gethin Jenkins was for Wales, where he gets over the ball to get through his tackles, or someone like Anthony Jansch, who, when you look at him, he doesn't look like the most athletic, sporting, professional player at all. You look like he may have been picked up from the local market, selling some sausages <laughs> at, the, at the butchers. But when he plays, he puts so much energy. We saw how quick he is with his finish from the Stephen Varney intercept pass against Italy. And he's just got so much energy. He captained France during the Australia series, so he's got that leadership uh, ability as well, and he can get around the park quite quickly. So France, a bit like Ireland, have got quite a bit, of, uh, quite a good balance to their pack. Just um, briefly on their on their team, actually, while we're on kind of the, the topic of individuals, Joram Moafana comes in in midfield, and Francois Crow is in the back row. Obviously, an injury to Jonathan Dante in midfield, but how does that change things for them? Difficult to say. Um, I think they, they've definitely densified their pack. Uh, Fabian Galti said after the team announcement that he was looking to add some Gallic roughness to his front eight, and that's what he's, why he's really brought in uh, Francois Cross instead of Dylan Cretin, who is superb in the lineup, but he's a bit lighter, he's a bit more of a, 
an open side player. Despite in France, they don't play with a six and seven. They have left and right flankers. Qatar's a bit lighter when Cross is just a bit in the build. Someone like that, Dan Idiot, who just tackles everything. He's a podiatrist by trade, so I don't know what that says about him, but he's a very talented player and he's been, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a cornerstone for Toulouse, for example. Um, Moifan is very different to jo- Jonathan Dante. Dante is a big, powerful runner. Can't really stop him, but he's really improved his, goal, uh, his kicking and also his ability from hand. But Moifana, he's 21. It'll be his third appearance. Um, he's very fresh. But I spoke to Ben Tamafino, who plays them at Bordeaux Beg a few uh, weeks ago, and he was saying, "Well, you can look, you can see straight away that he's an Islander by the by the size of his thighs. And when you do actually look how big of his legs are, they are massive for a guy who was quite young and looks quite slender. When you look at him, especially upper body, his lower body is." pretty impressive and what he can do is if he's got quick feet he gets out of the tackle he likes to offload and defensively he's pretty sound but coming up against Bundyaki will probably be the biggest test of his career mm. yeah he was good last weekend wasn't he off, off the bench they've also got gone for six forwards on the bench Gav which probably is a little bit of an indication of where they want to go at it it's obviously not a an uncommon thing to do now but they've so much strength and depth in the pack it probably makes sense as well while you always have that worry about an early injury in their back line yeah, you're getting me frightened all over again. I'm not going <laughs> to lie to you. Here's a question from Killian, which might turn the conversation on its head a little bit. I'll throw this to yourself, Murray. He said it was clear that Ireland targeted Josh Adams down the 13 channel from the start against Wales, but that strategy is unlikely to reap as many rewards with Gael Fiku in front of us. What do you think Farrell will identify as the chinks in the French armour? Yeah, I thought they did a really good job. First of all, it's a great point on, on Adams and putting him in situations like we probably kind of talked before the match that he just hadn't been in before and and, and had to react in a different way to being on the wing. You would imagine a little bit of that with Moafana, the, the least experienced kind of member of the centre pairing, but Fiku is an outstanding defender as, as well as everything else. It is hard to pick out weaknesses in the French team. You, you see Melvin Jaminet dropping a high ball at one stage and, and Italy score a try off it, but he's been strong in that area of the game before. Um, and I think Ireland just really need to focus on, and they've spoken about this, doing what they've been doing really well. And, and that's kind of been one of the... I think the team's really under Farrell is like, let's focus on us as much as possible. Because obviously, previously, it was all about nailing your analysis on the on the opposition, picking out weaknesses. That's obviously, as I mentioned, still a part of it. But if Ireland played to the style and the quality that they've delivered in their last four or five games, then they're very hard to, to live with. And, and it's about France worrying about what they're bringing to the game. So, yeah, absolutely, they'll have picked out little bits and pieces in, in, in individuals but I think France again they're kind of in a similar position to Ireland they're in a, a really exciting trajectory probably started theirs a little bit earlier and now it's for them is getting to the winning of titles um, this feels like a really good opportunity for them first time since 2010 to win a Six Nations title now it's sexing out as well and some Gallic roughness which I, I like the sound of promised it's going to be um, it's going to be a, a great chance for them to, to kick on this championship what about yourself, Ilted? Have you seen any cracks that France are papering over or are these just two teams that, until proven otherwise, are pretty spotless at the moment? Hard to say. I watched back the Italy game and for a large part of it, they were just doing one-pass one attacks. And I Was that down to the fact that it was raining so much at the start of France or was that just a clear tactic that they might try and implement again this weekend, keeping it tight and using the, the big ball carriers within five metres of, of every rook we will see on Saturday. But when it comes to cracks in 
the armour of the French. There aren't many because they're so well prepared these days. And there's someone like Fabien Galtier and his coaching staff who um, he's almost pick-appointed every single one. He brought Sean Edwards over from Wales, probably one of the best defence coaches uh, professional rugby's ever seen. Uh, Laurent Labitte, he took uh, he's the attack coach. He took Racing to top 14 title, title and also Castre, who didn't play great rugby at all. Uh, Rafael Ibanez, 98 times Cap uh, Tucker, ex-captain. He's the team manager who's a bit of a a good cop to Galtier's bad cop to a certain extent. And then he's got two forwards coaches and William Stavart and Karen Gazal who coach really well in the top 14. So they, they know what it's like to be on the ground and they know a lot of the players haven't coached with them, coached them or coached against them. So there won't be too many armors in the cracks. Romain Tabak wasn't too convincing last weekend. I don't know what he, he hasn't played much because of COVID and uh, Toulouse have, aren't in great form either. Antoine Dupont, despite only playing once since or twice now since December the 11th, he looked okay, but wasn't back to what we know he can do. Um, so, yeah, I don't think there are many weaknesses, really. It's just a matter of how they're going to play, really. And if what France can do, which is great to see, is when they get chances, they score. So what I don't have to do is make sure that if if there's a spilt ball, uh, counter-attacks, loose kicks, they just can't afford to do that. Because if they do, France will pounce. Like we saw last uh, October, I think, at Stade de France, um, counter-attack is what... what the French backs love to do when they do it really, really well. Mm. It's it, it, the fear for Irish fans is that Antoine Dupont's just going to have that moment now against Ireland this weekend where he fires out that incredible fend, and even if it's a forward, he blasts people out of the way and accelerates and comes up with a brilliant bit of magic. How big a star is he over there? Uh, huge. I was I doubted what what, what he could do regarding becoming a, a big sporting idol that people would know, but. Well, a month ago, he was on the cover of GQ Sports, so GQ Sport version of the magazine, wearing a very interesting yellow bathrobe, which a lot of people have compared to all types of things, including like SpongeBob SquarePants. So feel free to put GQ Antoine Dupont bathrobe into Google and you'll see what uh, he looked like in that. And that underlined his ability to transcend sport and transcend rugby in France. He's gone from just being the world player of the year to being a guy who socially most people know about. The last person France had about that had in that sort of thing was probably Sebastian Chabal or Frédéric Michelac. Chabal was mainly there because he looked like a caveman and his big beard and he still does French TV now. Michelac was there because he was a superb player individually. He was had his own burger at a burger restaurant, Quick, which is kind of like French-Belgian McDonald's. And Dupont is kind of slowly getting to that sort of status and that will only increase by the fact that he's the standing captain now with Chen Olivon away due to an injury and also with the World Cup in mind, more and more companies and businesses will look to to, to eat off that sort of World Cup buzz by using someone like Antoine Dupont as, as advertising. What's he like as a guy, Ilted? Because I would have gotten the impression a couple of years ago that he was pretty reserved, but from what you're saying, it feels like he is raising his head above the parapet a little bit publicly, more so than he used to, if he is becoming this transcendent figure. Well, he made his senior debut at Cask at 17, and even then, he looked ready for rugby. He's already be, always been quite stocky. He's quite a quiet guy, but he absolutely loves rugby. He is a, an, 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 an encyclopedia about the sport. He'll watch everything and anything, which is great to see because sometimes you feel rugby players don't really care about the sport. They just play it because it just becomes... They become jaded with it, maybe, and they just get used to it. But he really still loves it all across the world. He'll watch Super Rugby. He'll watch... Uh, he might even watch AIL. I don't know. But um, he really loves it. And... A little example of that, they had the Top 14 Awards where he won the Top 14 Player of the Year, where they had a, a special awards ceremony, and after they had like a, 
a cocktail dinner with a bit of food and a, a few nibbles in a really posh Persian hotel and and instead of spending the time with his teammates as a lot of the players did, he spent his whole evening with Canal Plus the journalists just talking about rugby. When he easily could have been like, oh no, um, I've just won the award, I'm tired, I've got a game this weekend, I'm going to get the last train home or I'm going to go to bed to get the first train home tomorrow morning. But no, he stayed and talked about that and we've really seen him blossom off the field as well by doing that GQ shoot and also he's got his own uh, vineyard which also is a wedding reception area down the south and he likes to push that quite a lot on social media. Yeah, so he's definitely gone from being just that little teenager who made his debut for task to being well, the world player of the year. Johnny Sexton is as obsessed with rugby, but I don't imagine him standing around with the media for 30 minutes after he was up, contractually obligated to. You made an interesting point, Ilted, when we were speaking to you earlier, and I just wanted to bring it up again about France's defence. And I suppose to the untrained eye, or to most people, I would have thought in Wales, Scotland, Ireland, England, Sean Edwards would be credited as having revolutionised that French defence and, and bringing to them the blitz for which he is famous. You you see it slightly differently. Yeah, from speaking to some people who, who played with him, especially at Montpellier, um, Fabien Galtier had a blitz defence when he was there. And Fabien Galtier started his France tenure during the World Cup as a as a specialist or advisor to Jacques Bonnel and kind of implemented that blitz defence there when Sean Edwards was still coaching Wales. And so Galtier's always wanted to play with a blitz defence. So I don't think this is all to do with Edwards. Definitely what Edwards has brought in is individual discipline. And that's what maybe France lacked a bit. They were a bit hot-headed or they would tackle hard like a Serge Batsen will do, but then sometimes you'd have Jules Plisson playing 10 who would just let everyone go past him. But now, from 1 to 23, individually, they put their hands up and they tackle, which is a big difference. And what Sean Edwards was saying when he was at Wales, it was all about mentally. Defence is all about in the head, and that's what he's got them to enjoy. Gal Fico is his captain of the defence. He takes charge of things, playing 13 this weekend. So you can see, you'll be able to see most of the pitch, which is handy for him. And yeah, this French defence is pretty impressive, be that because of Edwards or despite Edwards, it's still pretty solid. On the other side of that gap, it's really interesting to see how Ireland's defence goes against this French attack because we're talking about power in the forwards, but like there were glimpses again last weekend of France's incredible attacking ability, skills. You know, they get passes away in the blink of an eye. Those t- couple of touches from Intimac and Penno for the first Villiers try were just remarkably skillful. And Ireland's defence gets another new test here. It's been in good form. They had a good November with it. They are getting the ball back really early in defensive sets and, and that's allowing them to have more possession. But France's attack will ask so many different questions of them. Villiers and Penno are unbelievably good at roaming. Similar probably to what Ireland have done with particularly their left wing and how Mac Hansen went last weekend, getting a lot of touches on the ball, being a distributor. Penno's played in the centre. Obviously Villiers just got every single skill in, under the, the sun, um, even defensively as well himself. Um, so it'll be fascinating to see Ireland manage those French threats because they come everywhere. They come with the punch of the forwards around the, the rock with Villiers popping up out of nowhere. And Tamak is like, he's such a instinctive player at times. And as we saw against the All Blacks, he can come up with moments that define games. And then they've got the, the threat of those powerful centres and a, and a back three you can finish. So it is a real step up on that front as well for, for Ireland, even away from the set piece. Do you think Sexton's absence there might change the French thinking a little bit 
which is not to suggest that Carberry is a bad defender. He's actually technically a pretty good defender, uh, at least to my untrained eye, but just doesn't have the size and the kind of physical impact of Sexton in that defensive line. Could you see Galtier maybe looking to exploit that or, or maybe channel a little bit more focus down that channel? Potentially, because Galtier is an incredibly astute rugby mind. He thinks about it a lot. He studies it a, bit a lot, especially in attack. Um, he's got some really interesting ideas about back moves and stuff that we saw in November. Um, so potentially he might have an idea to do something differently, but does he have the option, obvious option would be to send Johan Moyafana up against Clabry, which, okay, he's a big boy, but he's not as big as someone like Jodonti would have been. So potentially, but I think any coach in world rugby at any level always targets a play half, but whatever size they are. Because you want to test it, what what they've got, and if they they can't handle it, then good, you keep going down there. If they can't handle it, then it's not too bad. We'll, we'll test the fullback instead with a high ball. So I th- I'm sure Galtier will have something up his sleeve around that. What's the sense among the players? Uh, I suppose towards Galtier, like what's the sentiment like? Because famously, he's a pretty intense guy. We've probably been hoping a little bit, as much as we've been enjoying this French renaissance, that they will eventually <laughs> blow up before World Cup. It doesn't look likely. There is still time. I'm just wondering, how are they tolerating him and, and how is that sort of uh, off-the-field relationship going? Yeah, Galtier is a person when he was coaching at club, club club level, was a difficult character to deal with because he was quite he was highly critical publicly towards players, be that during uh, training sessions or in the media where he'd happily enough just lambast an individual for making the smallest mistake, which created an atmosphere of, of being scared and maybe not wanting to go to training on a Monday morning after a win or a defeat, um, and which is quite difficult as a player. But with, at, the, at the international level, it's different because instead of being together for an 11-month season as it is in the top 14, you only get to see your players maybe 12, 13, 14 weeks um, in a season at, at test level. So... He's a bit less. He might. He might still be less. He might still be as intense, but it's in a less amount of time. So it's probably easier to deal with. And also, these players are quite mature, despite their young age and lack of experience. And they know that in eighteen months' time, there's that holy grail of a home World Cup, which they would love to be in, also love to win. So whatever Galtier does do, I'm sure a lot of the players have that World Cup Webellis Trophy. Um, in November 2023 in the back of their mind. This must this might be a stupid question, but is there an actual appetite for Six Nations titles there now? Like, that French public has seen their team progress, but I suppose we ask ourselves the question here sometimes, how badly do they actually want to win the tournament and how focused are they actually towards that home World Cup? Like, that being the holy grail, is everything up until that point tolerable if there is conspicuous progress and that they are uh, tracking towards success at that World Cup or, or is this title important is, is what I'm asking yeah the idea of a title is interesting something Fabian Galtier said towards the start of his tenure after the 2019 World Cup was that he wanted to win games he wanted to win titles so that he could get the French public winning uh, behind the, the national team again and then now they are favourites for this title and you ask them what's it like to be a favourite of the title like we're not favourites for the title so it's an interesting game that he's playing in the media, but the, the obvious title would would be a Six Nations. You had an alternation script where they were within injury time of beating um, England a few years ago. And now there's this, they potentially four, now four games 
away from winning a first Six Nations in 12 years. There's some high school kids who've never seen France win the Six Nations, which is bizarre for a Welsh guy to say, considering the, the success we had for, over the past decade or so. Um, so there is, is there an expectation? Yes, for this team to do well. But I think the World Cup next year is more of the focus to do really well. And that's the main reason why Bernard Laporte, the French president, wanted the World Cup so badly was because he failed at home soil as a coach in 2007. And does he want to go one better as a president next year? couple more questions from listeners here, Murray, about Ireland before we wind down towards predictions um, for this game. We're going to chat a little bit about Scotland, England then as well. And if Ilted allows Wales. <laughs> but Mark O'Vrandon was wondering, uh, how do Ireland get more out of the bench? All good players, no doubt. And I understand it's hard to get into the swing of things in comparison to starting. But bench impact has been very minimal in the past few games. And that might prove costly this weekend. Now, Mark does point out that Peter Romani comes up with some big plays off the bench. And Dan Sheehan is dynamic. But he reckons there's a bit of a drop-off everywhere else. Yeah, I think they have got a bench impact. Even if you think back to November, <clears throat> the All Blacks match, they got bench impact. Even in Japan, when they were ahead, I think the players who came on played well. Last weekend, there were a couple of... Again, Piero Manny's really f- slotted into that role brilliantly. And I think he's right to flag Xi. And he, that's a real strength for Ireland. I suppose maybe the reference there is is around the, the propositions where clearly Porter and Furlong are, are first choice by a distance. Healy's a very experienced prop doesn't have the dynamism he, he once did but I think you can absolutely trust him in a pressure situation and Bielham has, has done really well for Ireland I think the loose head experiment or back over there very briefly was was tough on him and, and he put his hand up and did it for Ireland but when he's come on at, at, at tight head it's generally been to, to pretty solid effect France do have a, an incredibly powerful front row to bring on in Malvaca and Gro and um, Demba Bamba so that probably looks like a, a another kind of green tick in, in their favour when you're looking at advantages and the game potentially being close in the, the final 20 minutes where a scrum penalty can be the deciding of it. So yeah, probably share, share that slight bit of concern. But to this point, I think Ireland have got pretty decent impact. I think it's great to see Jack Cardi back involved in Ireland squad after such a long stint, having played such excellent rugby. And he'd be very hopeful of getting a chance to influence the game uh, and show that he belongs on on this level as well. And the Henshaw Henderson returns are are big for Ireland. Like that's really experienced test level players. Henderson in particular doesn't have a lot of rugby under his belt at all, but you can get twenty really explosive minutes uh, or even longer out of him. And Henshaw, as we know, is just top class performer whenever he's played over the last couple of years. So I think they can get I think they can get impact from that bench and they're gonna absolutely need it, particularly now with, with Sexton gone. They're gonna need it. Carberry hasn't played a lot of rugby either. He's just back from a fractured elbow, of course, and, and played what, fifteen, sixteen minutes last weekend. Um so I don't know whether it'll be an issue for him. Farrell said he's extremely fit and, and has trained really well, but I think having Cardi there is exciting as well. Probably on on the on the the whole, it's a probably an advantage to France, particularly with those six forwards and and how they use them. And one last one from Shane Brennan: How legal is Ireland's rock entry? What will opposition teams be highlighting to the referee during the week? Uh, yeah, that's his question. Sorry. Yeah, it's as legal as everyone else's, which is very hit and miss. <laughs> when you, especially when you go back through the games with a fine tooth comb, Ireland's breakdown has been excellent and really influential under Paul O'Connell you're always pushing the boundaries there aren't you there's 
there's side entries that are missed there's players potentially off their feet um, and that kind of comes with the territory I would imagine they could probably flip around and do a video review of, of France's and, and pick out a few as well Angus Gardner is the referee this weekend and as always in these tight big games the the referee is a is a key figure and getting a bit of influence there and getting good early images of, of your discipline is really important obviously Ireland went a long time without conceding one last weekend against Wales and when you go back through it you think there's a penalty there's a penalty even some of the, the contact in the air at line out time pulling arms was kind of baffling how the, the match officials missed some of that so you would imagine it'll be a lot more even this weekend around the breakdown they're, they're going to be as accurate as possible but when you're trying to create ball that quick you've got to live a little bit on the edge and, and Ireland have been doing that for years even when O'Connell was a player himself Call it for us, Murray, and uh, just to remind people earlier, or that earlier on, you did fancy Ireland. Uh, does the lack of Sexton change the outcome of this game, to your mind? Yeah, it does, it does. I thought Ireland on a really narrow margin earlier on, but they've lost their captain and, and their talisman, as I said, so I'm leaning towards a, a, France, a France victory now, definitely. Ilted? Yeah, I think so. Um, I don't like, like I said earlier, I don't like saying that rugby is based on one individual, but a fly-off is so important, and Sexton... 36 years old, century of caps. Um, yeah, France are going to win by five. <sighs> okay. It's, it, <laughs> it's now your opportunity to vent about Wales. What's going on? Don't start. Um, no, um, <laughs> it's a, the Six Nations for me on a personal level is difficult because um, the context around, me, around the whole thing, be that the regional lack of success at regional level, especially in Europe and in the URC, which has been going on for quite a while. Um, the lack of investment that has caused that from the Welsh, w, the Welsh Rugby Union, the fact that they have financial issues, having to repay loans. The WRU aren't the most professionally run organisation as you would hope that they could be, especially considering how important rugby is culturally and economically to the country. Um, and it's a shame to see that being seen on, not just at the senior level, also in the 20s, yeah, Ireland have got a nice crop there, but Wales, they're not that bad. They're not 50 points behind Ireland um, in the 20s level. And at senior level, we saw some individual um, performances that stood out. Team Basham thought was, was decent. Nick Tompkins, uh, quite a direct one defender, but that gets, gets the job done. But when you're lacking 700 caps because of injuries and selection, it's always going to be difficult wherever you come up against. So the, the fact that the Welsh senior team is in such a difficult situation is not because of Wayne Pivak. It's not because of um, the region's lack of coaches. It's because of the whole bigger picture that probably comes down to the Welsh Rugby Union and their management and a lack of separation of the professional game and the amateur game. How did you manage then to paper over, paper over that crack? I mean, we're speaking about the Six Nations champions, which is hard to believe. Um, three words, Alan Wynne jones um, He's <laughs> such a talismanic player and the respect that people have for him on the field is incredible. What he stands for is the most Catbury player um, of all time. Um, and I thought last season as well, he brought an element to his game, which he has done in the past few years, where if he gets an arm free for an offload, he was just I'm not saying that's the key winner, but also it helped. And we had a few red cards going our way. We had Willis Halaholo come on, who had a little bit of spark and a bit of colour. And that helped in the Six Nations is about momentum and a bit of luck and we end up getting that and maybe this year Wales won't get that sadly and um, yeah it might be the, the, the current champions and title holders but it doesn't mean anything to Six Nations because it's such a wonderful tournament that you never know 
most seasons there's at least two or three contenders in this year you've probably got four or five I could understand how Welsh fans Murray would have been at a low web after the weekend not only watching their senior team's defeat but knowing what had happened in that 20s game as well which transpired to be a massacre um but I, I wonder are, like I wonder are Wales better than they showed in Dublin or or maybe even if there were aspects of their performance in Dublin that because of the final score and because of Ireland's general dominance maybe we went underappreciated like I'd personally be surprised if say Scotland or England put four tries on them I, I know Ireland took some score as well but I thought in in certain moments when Ireland were attacking like Wales drift defence was actually pretty effective um, I, I don't know maybe I'm being too kind but I just don't I don't get the impression or maybe I just refuse to believe that they are as bad as some people believe they are I thought Ireland should have won by more to be honest I think they left a fair bit out there and Wales were really sloppy in certain areas absolutely as we've just discussed they're missing a lot of key guys and that's got to be remembered and kind of gets forgotten once you get into the thick of the games but uh, like Scotland have to be seen this weekend as an absolutely prime opportunity they've had a big result last weekend and a deserved victory in my eyes on really fine margins and now they go and, and they take on a Wales team who are in a, in a tough spot they've made a couple of changes Ross Moriarty comes back in to to, to lead them into war really and, and fight for their pride um, Alex Cuthbert's back after a long time out of kind of test rugby contention um, so they've tried to, to bring in some experience to solidify what they're doing but Scotland must be confident they've interestingly made quite a few changes to their team as well which is yeah, it's a kind of different move from Gregor Townsend, isn't it? Not even forced into injury, but just getting some fresh impetus and impact into the team with the likes of Tui Pilato in midfield, who I've, I've been really impressed with. Rory Darge on the bench as well is really exciting. He's been incredible for, for Glasgow. So that's a, a going to be a, a fascinating clash. But it, to be honest, it feels like prime opportunity for Scotland. It'd be kind of typical of them not to take it, but I hope they do so that we have them really in contention for the title as well and, and the race really heats up. What did you make of Scotland's performance against England, Ilted? It's just great to see England lose, wasn't it? <laughs> but, uh, no, in, That's what in, a, in, a, in a neutral and biased sort of way, I think uh, it was clinical. Finn Russell was Finn Russell. He's what we've seen uh, here at Racing or what you've seen in a Scotland jersey. Uh, yeah, I really like the look of Sonny Tupilotu off the bench. He adds a bit of something different in the 12 shirt. And then the pack really has got an edge to it now when... Maybe five, six, seven years ago, you thought the Scottish pack lacks a bit of a bit of nastiness, a bit of a bit of serious weight, a bit of aggression. But no, uh, really stood up. And um, hey, if Luke Hamdicky wants to play netball, then fine. <laughs> Are you as pessimistic uh, about Wales's chances this weekend as Murray sounds guilted? Uh Potentially, yes, because yeah, it's one of those. There's a big breath of air there, and uh, yeah, it's because. It's just difficult to see where things are going to get better on the field because we lack so much experience and collective experience, really. But hey, Wales can pull out the bag. There'll be seventy-five, about seventy-two and a half thousand people at the Millennium Stadium wanting Wales to win. So anything can happen with that sort of crowd behind you. Um, and hey, it's good to see Alex Cuthbert back from the abyss. And I also like the luck of Jack Morgan, who's at seven, who's at the Ospreys, also in Watkin at thirteen with the Ospreys. It'll be interesting to see what they can do at the test level because they really do stand out when they play at the regional level. So, um, yeah, there are shoots of hope within this team. We'll just have to see if those flourish in the weekend. Eddie Jones under fire, Murray. Uh, I'm not sure, does he deserve to be? And I'm not sure if the picture is as bleak for England as 
it may seem to some of their fans after a defeat in Murrayfield, albeit Scotland do have a almost a little bit of a hoodoo over England building now. Um, let's start with that decision to bring on George Ford for Marcus Smith. What did you make of it, and did he deserve to be lambasted for it? Yeah, it didn't strike me as crazy when I was watching it, and it still doesn't. George Ford's been playing brilliant rugby, and you're looking for a bench impact. Like I don't think Smith had been absolutely perfect by any means we've seen him obviously be influential late on in games for Quinns but it's it's a little bit different um and obviously it didn't go well and and then it's easy just to say that it was a a crazy decision it doesn't strike me like that at all to be honest this was a game of incredibly was always going to be an incredibly fine margins kind of style of game uh England were missing on Farrell and Courtney Laws and Manu Tuolagi continues to be really badly missed by them just to give them that directness in midfield they've got loads of nice ball players they've got loads of kind of skill in the back line albeit possibly not using it to to a great degree with with some of the kick focus but they missed his um, influence and even at that the game could have swung either way as we mentioned Luke Cowan-Dickey swung it uh, firmly in Scotland's favour late on but you think back to the first half Mark Smith has a chance to give a, a kick pass assist crossfield kick over to the right hand side where the the wingers in space and probably they they should have scored there a few minutes later Kevin Dickey just gets held up by the very influential Darcy Graham and Price and Russell and and a couple others jumping in on that situation and either of those go in and and England probably win the game it was really tight and really enthralling battle I thought brilliant six nations match even with the tough conditions um, but yeah, I don't think England are a million miles away given losing their captain and the other guy who would have been captain in laws. Um, but at the same time, Italy will give them a nice old um, test again this weekend. I thought actually Italy were like mildly impressive against France. Their, their defence was better. They were they made France work harder last weekend and the conditions probably helped that. Were a bit of a leveller. But um, yeah, you'd love to see them do something similar and give England a bit of a scare this weekend. Did you get that same sense from Italy did watching them against France and Paris? Yeah, I really liked watching Italy. Defensively, they were sound, uh, tackled low and hard. What they lack is maybe a bit of real weight in, in their pack, especially at second row. Canonia Ruzza, uh, quite tall and slender, so maybe, maybe they need to find some Bernard LaRue's or Paul Valenzes somewhere playing in, in the top 10 or, the, or in South Africa somewhere even and then bring them over. But no, Paolo Garbisi at 10, I think, He's a great player to watch. I think he could be one of the best tens, not even in the next World Cup, but in 2027 even. And Stephen Varney will be there alongside him at, at half-back. And uh, yeah, I thought they were impressively quietly impressive getting along with their work. They're lacking also someone like Jake Pledry or Bram Stein or um, Johan Meyer, who would make a difference, especially in that pack. And Sergio Perusci wants to come back against Scotland. They're great, fantastic. It'll be good to give him his Adivadeci at the end of the season. But no, it's, I was impressed by Italy and I think uh, they've got what it takes now to challenge. They just need a bit more time together as a squad and Q and Crowley needs to just yeah, bed these players in. Well, Lilted, we can't thank you enough for joining us for a second time today. Let's hope it's the last, even though we'd love to see you again. <laughs> <laughs> enjoy the... Thanks, man, Lilted. Yeah, thank you. And enjoy the match over the weekend, most importantly. I presume the two of you can convene at the stadium or beforehand... What are your or you your family plans actually yielded, don't you? You've yes, I've Irish friends over, have actually. a last weekend the in, in the press bar as they call it the Stade of France, they had some decent sandwiches and the coffee's not great, but they've got 
some hot water and some Coca-Cola if I have that. And then maybe a few beers after, but we'll see about that. I look forward to it. Don't be whispering too many good things about uh, French media and Murray's ear. We need him back here for another shift on Monday. Thanks, guys. And thank you to everybody at home as well, as always, for your continued support. If you're a member of the 42, thanks to all of our listeners for the brilliant questions. We probably got to a couple more in the original pod, but I tried to get to as many again this time around. There were too many to get them all. But as you know, just keep sending them and we'll get around to you eventually. And that's it. Enjoy the rugby yourselves over the weekend. And we will be back for members on Sunday and then Monday. And we'll be back in this regular slot for non-members next Thursday. So until then, mind yourselves. Take it easy. Paris s'éveille Les travestis vont se raser, les stripteaseuses sont rhabillées Les traversins sont écrasés, les amoureux sont fatigués Il est 5 heures, Paris s'éveille Le café est dans les tasses, les cafés nettoient leurs glaces Et sur le boulevard Montparnasse, la gare n'est plus qu'une carcasse Il est 5 heures, Paris s'éveille Paris s'éveille les banlieusards sont dans les gares, à la villette on tranche le lard. Paris by night regagne l'écart, les boulangers font des bâtards. Il est 5 heures, Paris s'éveille. Paris s'éveille. La tour Eiffel a froid aux pieds, l'arc de triomphe est ranimé. Et l'obélisque est bien dressé entre la nuit et la journée. Il est 5 heures, Paris s'éveille. Paris s'éveille. Les journaux sont imprimés, les ouvriers sont déprimés Les gens se lèvent, ils sont brimés, c'est l'heure où je vais me coucher Il est 5 heures, Paris se lève Il est 5 heures, je n'ai pas sommeil